Thank you, guys. What a good reminder. Um, yeah, I would say if you're, if you're new um, and you're trying to figure out over the last couple of months what this church thing is about, I think our songs sometimes do the clearest, most direct description of what a Christian is. That we think we're only rescued from the wrath we deserve, not by our good deeds, but only because Christ died in our place. That's good news for those who don't know Christ. That's good news every day for Christians who seek to follow Christ. And that's good news that we're going to see in our passage this morning. So if you have your Bible, we have finally made it. You need to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We started looking at Romans back in September And over the course of about 12 Sundays or so, we walked through chapters 1 through 7 of this this favorite book of the Bible, this highly memorized book of the Bible, this letter from Paul to a church 2,000 years ago explaining the good news of the gospel, the, the message from God for sinners about Jesus Christ. And this morning, we get to go to one of the most well-known chapters of the Bible. Not just well-known, but beloved. Because there's so many verses in this chapter that people turn to for comfort. I'm sure some of you in here, your favorite verse in the Bible is in Romans chapter 8. Verses like verse 28. For we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him. Or verse 32, but God did not spare, or did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. Or verses 38 and 39, where it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is a, it is a favorite verse of um, so many Christians. It is also not just a, a passage filled with um, empty platitudes. This is not just all is well that ends well or something like that. There's richness to this chapter. It gives us encouragement that we can believe, that we can know, that we can trust. And my hope over these next five weeks, as we look at the book of uh, Romans chapter 8, that you would meditate on the love of God, that you would find comfort and joy in the message of the gospel, that some of you would be compelled to follow Christ when you see what is offered from this God to those who trust in his son. Those of you would be encouraged to holiness and that the end result, when we're done with this in five weeks, it would enrich and deepen your love for God and your worship for him. That's my hope. And we're going to look at Romans 8 starting now. So let's look at Romans chapter 8. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Romans 8, 1 through 11. If you're not there, get there, look on with the person next to you. You need to hear what God has communicated to us because we need this for today. Romans chapter 8. The word of God reads, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen. This is God's word. We need to pray before we start studying this chapter. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we now get to look at your word and to look at the magnitude of the promises that you have given to believers. Lord, this is, this is not just for mature believers, adult believers. These are the promises you've made to everyone who's been purchased by the blood of your son. Father, I pray that this would be an encouraging study. I pray now that we would think deeply about the rich truths, the the goodness that you've shown us. Lord, I pray as we look at the gospel that you would compel sinners to follow you and draw them to yourself. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray you'd bless this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've played this game before. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. Yes, thank you, honey. You're still in the front row. That's good. (laughs) That was the nastiest flower I could find on campus. But we made it work. So you've played that game before. You remember this when you were a kid, pulling it, saying he loves me, loves me not. It's a, it's a silly game. I don't know if any scientific studies have been done as to the accuracy of the love of said person. But I think for so many of us, that is an accurate reflection of our relationships. For many of us, we go through life worried about the people we come in contact with, working through in our minds, they love me, they love me not. So much of what we do is driven by fear or at least curiosity as to whether or not we're actually accepted by those we interact with. So many of us are secure with our friends, but other of, others of us are worried. Ah, if I mess up, if I don't dress a certain way, act a certain way, post a certain way, my friends will reject me. Some of you have someone that has uh, procured a boyfriend or girlfriend And that relationship seems to be driven by fear. I need to act this way, call it this time, text this time, or I'm out. He loves me, she loves me not, etc. That doesn't change in high school. Um, The the same will be true when you move to get a job one day, and you'll be curious, does this boss like me? Is he against me? Many of us live consumed with this sort of fear. And it's natural to some extent, right? Because we, we have, in our thinking... Uh, begin to consider that if people really knew our flaws, they wouldn't like us as much. We know our flaws, and we don't like what we see. 
And so therefore, if I can hide these, if I can only talk a certain way, or uh, maybe uh, my post only reveals so much about myself, uh, then people will see the best version of me, and then they will accept me. Because if they knew the real me, I would be rejected. And I think, sadly, we take that mindset into our spiritual life as well, into our walk with the Lord. You know, we show up on Sunday, we know we're, we're dressed our absolute best. You are presenting now, most of you, the best version of yourself. But God sees us the rest of the week, and we know what we look like the rest of the week. And we ask questions like, how can I be saved in light of this? Does God really love me since he knows this about me? How can I really be forgiven? Does God love me now the same way he loved me back then? Some of you even said to yourself, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian, not even sure where I would go if I were to die today. Some of you constantly wrestle with these questions. No certainty. Everything in the future is foggy. And what Romans 8 is for is to give you certain hope. It's to give you clarity. Romans 8, the whole book is about assurance. It's to give you rest. It's to silence your own suspicions about your spiritual walk. It's to provide clarity, certain confidence regarding your salvation. It's meant to tell you, yes, the promises of God are true. His word, his promises do not falter. And I know there are many of you in this room, whether not a Christian or a struggling Christian, that you are wishing you had more assurance, more confidence about where you stand. And Romans 8 is exactly the book for you. It's the book you need. Now, we as Christians often do struggle with doubt. And there's typically two causes for that. One of those is suffering from the world. The Bible tells us if you live godly in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3.12, you will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29 says, To you it has been uh, granted, graced. It's the same word. It's your gift. Here's your gift from God. To you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but also to suffer for him. And all of you know that. You know that if you live godly, you will suffer to some degree. All of you, if you go to school with other, uh, with non-Christians or pseudo-Christians, all of you know that exact line. You know what I'm talking about. That line that says, okay, if I, if I cross into obedience that far, I'm going to catch some flack for it. I'm going to get some looks for that. You know that line. And because of that suffering, that rejection that exists in the world, what happens for believers is... Wait a second. If all these people are against me, is God really for me? Right? I mean, how? why does rejection come uh, when it seems to come from obeying the Bible? Why do unbelievers seem to be better off? How can I really be living under God's blessing if obedience makes life so hard? Right? You've thought that before. You've considered that. You've walked through that. And so that's one reason people doubt the promises of God. Maybe this isn't true because the good life seems to be opposite of this book. So that's one reason we doubt rejection of the world. The second reason we tend to doubt 
whether or not God has really saved us, forgiven us, has he really secured heaven for us, is because of the sin that exists in our own hearts. It's the rejection of the world and the sin in our own hearts that causes us to doubt. Let's think about what Romans has said about sin so far. Romans 1 says that sin is not just a violation of God's commandments. It's not just where you're told to do A and it said you did B. Uh, Sin is you've rejected God personally. Romans 1, you've suppressed the truth. You've held down the truth and unrighteousness. And sin is not just for you know, wicked, unreligious people. Romans chapter 2 talks about religious people who walk in the same sort of sin, who saying one thing live a different way. In fact, take your Bible and go to Romans chapter 3. We're not going to do a, a huge overview, but I want us to understand the, the context of Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans 3, because Romans 3, I think, is one of the strongest descriptions of what sin looks like, of how sinful sin is. So here's what Paul the Apostle writes, verse 10. It says, as it is written, none is righteous. There's no one who could say, I'm a good person. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So when we sin, when we uh, talk back or yell at our parents that God has put in authority over us, it's not just we've broken a rule, we've turned aside from God. We've gone a different direction than where he would be. In verse six, or 18 there, says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. So sin is rejecting God. Sin shows no respect for God. It says, God, you are not as God-like as you claim to be. That's what we've learned so far. And yet the, the good news of the gospel is what? Verse, verse 21. But now the righteousness, the way to be made right before God, the righteousness of God, the way for God to say you, you are in the right, you are spotless, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. All, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So we just sang about that through Christ, by trusting in Jesus, that is not just saying to Jesus, I'll be a partner, I'll be a fan, but clinging to Christ to rescue you from your sin. God claims you as right, holy, sinless. It's not a clean yourself up act. It's you are cleaned and declared innocent from the outside. And it's certain, it's it's clinging to Christ who died on the cross in our place as sinners. That's how we're forgiven. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1 says the exact same thing. Therefore, since we have been justified, we've been declared right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You could have peace with God through Christ, who's a a second, or first Timothy calls him a mediator, a peacemaker, because he died in the place of sinners. So we know that. You think we see the sin in our hearts. Josh, you've, you've told me how bad sin is, Romans 1, 2, and 3. Paul, now you've told us how we could be forgiven, Romans 3, 4, beginning of 5. But turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. Because this is where, this is where doubt creeps in. Because we live still with the reality of sin in our life. Verse 14 For we know that the law is spiritual, but I 
I'm of the flesh. I'm of this, this corrupted body that still wants to sin. I'm of the flesh. Verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in my corrupted body. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 21, so I find this to be a law that when I want to do right, he says, this is a law. This isn't talking like legal law. This is, uh, this is like Murphy's law. You know Murphy's law, whatever can go wrong. It's a principle. It's a practice. We see Paul says, I find this to be just a normal habit in my life. He says, what is that? That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 24, it makes him respond, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you're a believer, you've experienced Romans 1 through 7. You've seen the horrors of sin, and it's caused you to repent and cry out to God to rescue a rebel like you. And you've known the the greatness and the mercy of forgiveness, to know that all your sin has been washed away, nailed to Christ at the cross. And then you know the difficulty, the angst of Romans 7. Why, when I know sin is so bad, And why, when I know I want to obey, do I keep on sinning? And in that frustration, what some of us do is say, I'm probably not a Christian. Because if I were a Christian, and if I were actually going to heaven, I wouldn't deal with sin like this. I'm probably some false convert. And we stop there. Every time you see your own sin, your mouth pops off at your parents, unkind to friends again. You you see anger, jealousy, rage, consumed with the things of the world. Even this week, how many of you were surprised, don't raise your hand, but how many of you were surprised by sins you committed coming off of winter camp? Where you just felt so spiritual and so near the Lord, and why five days later are you thinking, man, what? What happened? The aim of Romans 8 is to help us put to death the doubt that says, how does God still love me when my sin is so heinous? Romans 8 is about quieting those doubts. Quieting the doubts that come from suffering from the world and come from the sin that still resides inside of us. If you're looking for a sermon title for this, you can call this Certainty for Sinners. How can forgiven sinners who still sin know for certain that God loves them, that they've been forgiven, that their sins are paid for? That's what we're looking at in Romans 8. That's especially what we're looking at today in Romans 8, 1 to 11. If you're a note taker, what Paul wants to do is give you two comforts, two comforts that help struggling Christians work through the sin that still exists in their life. And I say struggling Christians because this text will seem very strange for nominal non-struggling Christians. 
The question is not, do believers still sin? Uh, believers still sin. Unbelievers still sin. Make believers still sin. The, the Christian struggles with their sin because they love Christ and they know they're betraying him. So what do they do about it? And this text gives you, high school student, two comforts. You've got to know this. You've got to understand this. If, if, you, want, uh, if you want to live a life free of anxiety about the future, you need to know these two truths, Okay. So what are those two comforts that God wants you to know for certain that he's not a he loves me, he loves me, not God, but if he loves you, he always loves you. Here's what they are. Number one is this, the work of Christ. The first comfort is the work of Christ. And I want you to notice that none of this has have anything to do with looking at ourselves primarily. It's going to be looking at Jesus. If I look at Jesus, I can know that God still loves me the way he promised he would love me. Now, is there a better verse in the Bible than Romans 8.1? Maybe. I don't know about this whole ranking of verses system, but Romans 8.1 is such a comfort. We know our sin. We know the judgment that should happen because of our rebellion against God. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The word condemnation is, a, is to judge against. It's a, court, it's a courtroom word. And you've seen, if you've ever watched on the news, the, the sentencing of a major case where the judge reads the sentence and says, guilty or not guilty. Right? And what does he have? He has that gavel. Right? It's just, it, it, it gives a... Uh, Gives a little oomph to it, a little certainty to it. The defendant is not guilty. You know, done. And that's it. Everybody knows, case closed, it's over. And for the Christian, if you're in Christ, God has permanently spoken on the matter. Not guilty. Forgiven. Not going to be a retrial. No mistrial can be found. You will never be condemned for your sin. You will never be uh, damned for your sin. The judgment has already been rendered not guilty. That is good news. And I want to stop and say that is only good news for the Christian. This is only speaking to those who've trusted in Christ. So no such promise is guaranteed. God doesn't make such promise to all people. I know in our day and age of... uh, of helicopter parenting in a society that doesn't let you take the blame for everything. We think we'll all just be rescued in the end because that's what you're shown over and over again. But it's not the case with this God. He makes no such promises to people who don't trust in him. But for those who've trusted in him, who've, who've asked for forgiveness of sins and said, Christ, I need you to rescue me. I'm turning my life over to you. Not guilty. Permanently. No condemnation. Now we need to stop and ask this question. How... Do we know? Because you can just say stuff. But we all know that saying stuff doesn't necessarily make it true. Let me give you an example. When you were younger and you ate lunch on a hot summer day and you had your swim trunks on and you're ready to jump in the pool and somebody really nice, maybe a parent said, well, to make your swim time nice and neat, Wait an hour after you eat. Have you heard this expression before? Something like it, right? Or an apple a day keeps the doctor away. 
There are plenty of people who've swam 15 minutes after they eat, and they're able to hold it down. There are plenty of of, uh, people who need to see a doctor on the regular who've had plenty of apples in their days, right? These are just sayings. They don't always mean anything. They're not always certain. And so I, youth pastor, talking to you student, maybe who's grown up to church, I come up and say, God will forgive you. You'll never be guilty. And some of you are naturally suspicious. You're like, that's just, again, an empty platitude I've heard before. How do I know I need more than just words? And Romans 8 gives us more than just words because God has given us more than just words to cling to. These are not just an old wives' tale uh, that there's no guilt for those in Christ. He tells us what he's done. Verse 3. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So let's stop there. If you want to know you're not guilty, it's because something that God has done. He has accomplished on behalf of sinners. And he's done what the law could not do. What does the law not do? Well, in chapter 7, if you were here with us six weeks ago when we looked at that, chapter 7 tells us that the law could not save us. Why? Because we were so wicked that when the law would say stuff like, do not lie our corrupted flesh would go, ooh, that sounds good. Let me get in on some lying. Let me get in on some murder. Maybe just, I'll just keep it at murder in the heart, but let me get in on that, right? And so the law could not save us. Uh, the law uh, would only uh, fire up the, the sinful desires in us. We'd see disobedience and go, yep, I want me some of that. And so the, God has done, though, what the law could not do, which is what? to give us rescue, give us deliverance, show us how we could be made right with God. What, how did he do it? How, what did God do? tells us, verse 3, in the middle there, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What did God do? Well, he sent Jesus Christ. It says he, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus came as a sinner. It doesn't say that Jesus' body was corrupted, but he had a body. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came as a person and lived lives like we live, with uh, struggles like we struggle with, with temptations, it says in Hebrews, tempted in every way, yet without sin. And he not only came in, sinful, in the likeness of sinful flesh, he came for sin. That is, in the place of You know, when you're bartering, trading with someone, I'll give you this for that. Jesus came for sin. That is, Christ came to pay the penalty for sin. That he came and lived the perfect life and died willingly, he tells us, for sinners. So that they could be forgiven. So that they would not have to have their sin paid for. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the work of Christ. He, this is a, the gospel is not a punishment that is forgotten by God. It's the punishment we deserve placed on another. So that we would be what? Forgiven, verse 4. Take a look. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So God tells us, be holy as I am holy. We are not holy. Evidence, look at this past week. And yet Christ lived holy on our behalf It took the punishment for us so as if now God looks at us as if we lived a holy life. That's the gospel. That's the work of Christ. 
Why does God view you as holy? Well, I went to church and I memorized verses. No, he views you as holy because Christ died in your place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that his righteousness would be given to us. That's the gospel. That's why God loves us because it's as if we've lived Christ's life. But if you notice, I I skipped over a a part there. Take a look at verse 3. Again, it says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, what's that word? Condemned sin in the flesh. Why, when you as a Christian deal with sin in your life, why can you know for certain, not just as an empty saying, but how can you know that you won't be condemned, damned, judged for your sin? Ready? Because that sin has already been condemned. The sentence has already been carried out. There's not going to be a double sentencing, a double judgment. How can you be judged for that which was already judged and paid for? Paid in full. Wages of sin is death, and yet Christ has paid the wages of our sin. Oh, Christian, that is good news. If this week you have been dealing with sin in your life and you come to communion first hour going, how can I take communion when I know about sin, when God knows about this sin? The reason is because of Christ. Because Christ paid for that sin. Michael Reeves this week tweeted, Christ, not sin, is the history of the Christian. Your history, student, is not your sin. You're always viewed as if you were in Christ. That's your legacy, that's your rap sheet, that's your resume before the Father, is that you're in Christ and therefore accepted. Why can you pray tonight to God? This is good news. Why can you pray tonight to God who you sinned against and it be accepted? Because Christ paid for your sin. That's always the case. The only reason why we're acceptable to the Father It's because his son died in our place. That is comforting. That is good news. Student, let that ease your conscience this week. Christ died for me. We just sang that, didn't we? Christ's blood is the only reason why I'm forgiven. And that's comfort number one. Comfort number one in the face of sin is the work of Christ. Let's move to our second one. Comfort number two. Comfort number two is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now let's let's back up here and, and go big picture. That's a sub point, Zeph. Take that off for now. Yeah, yeah. All right, there we go. So the work of the Holy Spirit. What is what do we mean by that? We we know about Christ, right? We sing about Christ. We just take communion where we remember Christ. And we we like to sing about the Father, but if there was one member of the Trinity that we don't always know as much about, at least in our circles, is the Holy Spirit. What do I know about the Holy Spirit? How do I think of the Holy Spirit? And yet here, Paul, in this chapter, is going to mention the Holy Spirit some about 20 times. Take a look at verse 4. It says that that Christ, uh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us. Now, what about us, those believers, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit? So believers, those who have been forgiven, walk according to the Spirit. And in verse 9, it says, You, however, 
are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So walking in the spirit, living in the spirit, the spirit dwelling in you is a mark of a real believer. So what is the difference between a a real believer and uh, just an external religious person? The difference is, well, on the outside may not look like much. On the inside, it's as different as two species of animals. Because the difference is the believer has the Holy Spirit residing inside of them. They walk in the Spirit. Now, we need to think about that. What does that mean? They walk in in the Spirit. They live in the Spirit. The Bible talks about walk as your pattern of life, uh, the the normal behavior that you exhibit. But what does that mean? You know, there's a lot of confusion today regarding the Holy Spirit. And if you were to talk to a lot of different churches outside of the Grace Community Church context, some of them would have some pretty severe uh, critiques about the way our church interacts with the Holy Spirit. You know, so some say we are quenching the Spirit, resisting the Spirit. The Spirit has given us all sorts of gifts like tongues and healings and prophecy. And all of you Bible people at GCC are missing out on that. And uh, we could talk later if you want to about those gifts. I'll give you a quick uh, reason why we don't believe in those things. Because the way it's practiced today is not the same as you see it in the Bible. Bible healing is you touch someone, they're fully healed, not you touch someone a bunch to make their headache go down. Prophecy is you speak the very word of God. It's, it's not spiritual hunches. And uh, tongues is not a prayer language that just comes upon you. It's speaking a known language. Like I would, I would speak Chinese to a Chinese person sharing the gospel, even though I've never taken a single Chinese class. So that's, that's, uh, those are the gifts in those days. We uh, don't see those practiced today. And so it makes us wonder, why aren't those manifestations of the gift around today? That's, but, but even so, there would be others who wouldn't critique us because of the, the gifts. I think the bigger critique, where people would say, Grace doesn't really understand the Spirit, is because they'd say we're, you know, stuffy. You know, how can the Holy Spirit work when the guy up front is wearing a tie and there's an organ and there's like stand up and sit down and we barely clap and nobody raises their hands. And, and how do you, you've heard these critiques before, right? You've, you've heard some of these that, you know, man, I just, I feel like the Holy Spirit was there and the Holy Spirit's not really there. You've talked to others, you've heard about this, or maybe not. I'm just making stuff up maybe. But for so many people, that's the idea of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit for them gives energy, uh, we, they sing about like the Holy Spirit is welcome here. They, they feel the Spirit. It's more of the emotional feels. That's what the Spirit is. You want to be careful with that because I can get the same thing if I go to a U2 concert. And so you want to think through, is the Spirit just emotions? Is it just the feels? What I want you to see, student, is Romans chapter 8 provides a greater more glorious picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Better than the Holy Spirit giving you feels, better than the Holy Spirit giving you emotions, the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 is not a ministry of what you feel. It's a ministry of what you know. It's what you know for sure. It's what you can bank on. And the Holy Spirit helps us know, helps us have that confidence 
that we are really believers, that we really belong to Christ, that God will really bring us home. And if you see the Holy Spirit in your life, Romans 8 is saying, you know you're saved. See this connection here. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit, that's that word law of you being used as principle again, pattern. The, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. But if you notice there, verse 2 flows from chapter 1, or sorry, from verse 1. So verse 1, there is no condemnation. Why? Because the Spirit has set you free. And so there is this link between your sins being forgiven and the Spirit's work in your life to put sin to death and make you holy. And so if Christ saved us, then certainly the Spirit will sanctify us. Let me say that again. If Christ has certainly saved you, then the Spirit will certainly sanctify you. Evidence of the Spirit changing you in your life is evidence that Christ has saved you. I'll say it differently. If there's no evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, then perhaps there's no evidence that Christ has really rescued you. That's what's happening here. That's what Paul wants to see. Now, I don't think Paul's point in this passage is for us to test ourselves. He wants to give comfort. But let's ask the question again. Verse 4. Verse 4, those who are of the Spirit will walk in the Spirit. Verse 4, who walk, believers walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it look like to walk according to the Spirit? How do I know I'm somebody, right? Because, because people who are of the flesh are like Romans 2 people who know the law but don't live it out. So how do I know if I'm a religious person that I'm a walk in the Spirit sort of person and not a walk in the flesh sort of person? Two evidences of it. Here's the first one. What is the work of the Spirit? We see the first is a change in mind. There we go. That's what I was looking for earlier. Is a change in mind. The work of the Spirit changes the mind of the unbeliever upon being saved. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, that's the old self, that's the sinful nature that loved rebellion. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what does set your mind? Um, what, what, do we, what do we know about this? Well, I want you to first notice that he's talking about the mind. That conversion is about a change in the inner man, the, the inner person. Right? Even the word repentance, right? Repentance means change of mind. That's a change of mind about your sin and your need to follow Christ. But evidence of the Spirit starts with your, your thinking. Now, what is this not saying? This, this is not saying, well, if you ever have a fleshly thought, you're probably not of the Spirit. It's not what he's saying, because that's Romans chapter 7. We, we do battle against sin. But what Paul is talking here is about patterns, do you constantly set your mind on the things of the flesh but, or the things of the spirit? It's talking about your mindset. It's talking about mentality, your focus, how you're bent. Uh, another word would be obsession. Some of you, you, you can think of an example of a friend who's obsessed. 
Maybe they're obsessed with another person, obsessed with a certain restaurant, obsessed with a certain sport, but you know what obsession looks like. To set your mind is mental obsession. And obsession doesn't mean that that's the only thing you think about, but it is the thing you think about most often. And the believer, the one who walks in the Spirit, is the one who is obsessed, sets their minds on the things of the Spirit, those who are of the flesh, think on the things of the flesh. What is that? Take your Bible, hold it right here. I'm going to have you go to one cross-reference. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, which I think gives us one of the most clear descriptions of the Spirit, that's the new self that's been changed, and the flesh. Let's look at the deeds of the the flesh. Uh, Galatians, we're in chapter 5, that's to the right of where we are in Romans. Galatians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 16. I say to you, again, this is normal, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Notice, you, you can't kind of go back and forth. It's, it's which camp are you in? Now look at verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when we say flesh, we've been talking about that sin is not just something we do, it's something that we're corrupted by. We're born with a sin nature. And even though we uh, are forgiven as Christians, there's still something just fallen about our bodies. What does it mean to live in the flesh? To live in the flesh, it's, oh, if you sin once, you're in the flesh. That's not true. But to live with your mindset on the things of the flesh is that your thinking goes towards these things and loves these things here in Galatians 5. It's to be obsessed with sexual craving, with idolatry, with enmity. That means strife. That's the kind of person that's always thinking about the people they're angry with. It's always mentally frustrated cutting people down. I can't believe they do this. How dumb are they? It's um, dissensions, divisions. It's envy, hatred, pleasure-seeking. Again, I want to make it very clear. A Christian is still dealing with sin because they're in their fallen bodies. But the mindset on the flesh is obsessed with these things. They're obsessed with the things of the world. They're obsessed with what they can get out of the world. I say that last one because that helps us because remember, in Romans 2, Paul talked about sometimes sinners that are fallen go to church every weekend. So what does that mean to look in the flesh? I I think you know the example for that if you've seen Testimony Sunday night. How many testimonies from, from students sitting around you where students said, you know, the only reason I obeyed prior to being saved is just because I, I wanted people to like me. I wanted to get away with other sins, so I obeyed in front of my parents so they wouldn't notice. That's what the mindset on the flesh looks like. It, its ultimate aim is towards rebellion. It wants to get as close to the line as possible because it really loves everything that's across the line. That is the mind that is set on the flesh. That is the 
the natural state of every single person. Now go back to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 8. And we'll, we'll camp there the rest of the time. The problem, why we think that way and why the world thinks that way, is the world is told those things are good. So hatred is good. You need to be angrier. That's the currency of our day. If you don't have exactly what you want, get angry. Be jealous. Uh, cause more division, strife. Some of you see that. You, you see division following you everywhere you go. Uh, pursue every kind of pleasure, whether it, be, whether it be sexual or drinking or entertainment. All of life is about that. It's good. And what Paul warns us about how, here in verse 6 is for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Those things only lead to death, only lead to condemnation. Now, those things only lead to separation from God. In fact, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, angry against God, warring against God, for it does not submit to the law of God. It will not obey. It's obsessed with disobedience. In fact, it doesn't obey because it cannot. Let this verse sink in. This is helpful. Those, verse 8, who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are fallen in their sin cannot please God. They can't. Because all they love is to be hostile to Him. That's each of us in our natural state. That was each of us in our rebellion. That was each of us in Romans chapter 5. It says, while we were enemies of God. But when you're saved, something different happens. God puts his spirit inside of you. He changes you from the inside out, and the spirit comes to dwell in you. And your life looks different. How does it look different? You don't get taller. Some of you do because you got saved while you were young. Your bank account doesn't go up. You're not necessarily better looking. I could tell. And uh, what changes? What changes first is your thinking. You begin to have the mind that's set on, obsessed with, bent towards love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness self-control. Your mind bends towards those things. You want to pursue those things because you want to honor the God who's changed you so that you can do those things. The Christian wants to obey from the heart, from the mind first. That's what life in the spirit looks like. They're set on those things. And when they fall short, their conscience bothers them. Why? Because their mind is set on the things of the Spirit. And so, student, if you are in a Romans 7 battle with sin, or you're despairing over the sin in your life, again, not despairing because it hurt your reputation, but despairing because you've dishonored God, that despair comes from a mind that is set on the things of the Spirit. That despair only exists inside of you, that struggle, because of the spirit that's inside of you. Now that's comforting, right? 
There are plenty of people that don't feel bad about their sin, and the only time they feel bad is when they're weeping after they've been caught. It's a man-word sadness. The Christian struggles in private and confesses to others because their mind is set on the things of the Spirit. But it's not just there. Second, it's a, it's a change in action. It's a change in action. So what is, what is the work of the Spirit? He changes our minds, and as a result, it changes our actions. Now, you might ask, that's, that's really great, Josh, that the Spirit changes our hearts now that I want to obey, but I still don't have the ability to obey, right? Because our, our bodies have said are corrupt. They're bent towards sin. They want to sin. That's true. A fish that wants to fly, that dreams about flying, that talks about flying, that studies flying, can't fly if it doesn't have wings, no matter how much it wants to, and you know, bubbles up to the surface or something like that. But look what it tells us, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, that is Christ through the Spirit is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So though we are fallen in our nature, only able to do what's against God, because of the Spirit, not only do you want to obey, but you actually can. He gives life to our dead bodies, spiritual life, so that we can walk in holiness. Student, this is such good news. You can obey. You can be, the opposite of verse 8, pleasing to God. Why? Because he's put his very spirit inside of you to help you obey, to give you life. You can put sin to death. Let me say that again before we go further in this text. Whatever sin you're dealing with, whether it's something to do with the mouth, uh, the eyes, your, your own actions, the way you interact with others, whatever sin you're dealing with, if you're in Christ, you absolutely can put that sin to death. We'll look more at that next week. But you can because of the Spirit who has given life to your bodies. That is good news. And ready? If you're a Christian going, man, I don't know how I still deal with this sin in my life. Look back at other areas in which you've grown. Look back in other ways that you've once disobeyed and now started to obey. Okay, those uh, those past marks of obedience, that's not license to keep sinning, but it's evidence of the Spirit's work. You didn't obey because of yourself to begin with. All obedience you've done is the fruit of the Spirit. And that's incredibly comforting, right? It's incredibly comforting because it's, it's evidence of this change. And if we've been sanctified by the Spirit, it's evidence that we have been justified, forgiven in Christ. Now, to what degree, to what degree does this change happen as we wrap up? Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You know what that is saying? It's saying that that change that we've experienced so far because of the spirit is is like a preview of coming attractions. The, The same spirit who resurrected Christ is the spirit that not only gives our bodies life, 
but will give our bodies life eternally. We'll glorify our bodies. We'll remove sin in our bodies forever. And so therefore we could trust now that he has given us the ability to obey. Oh, that is such, such good news that we can obey in Christ. What kind of power in my life is at work to help me obey? Resurrection power. That's the kind of power that's at work in you to help you obey if you're in Christ. This text is not an examination text. It's not a, it's not a passage that Paul writes to say, now, are you in the flesh or in the spirit? But as I say that, and as I talk about resurrection power to help you obey, have you asked, have you seen that in your own life? It'd be so strange if somebody would go, I have no idea if I've been resurrected from the dead. Right? And yet, have you seen yourself spiritually pass from death to life? One of my prayers would be, student, that some of you would not be naive. That you would see, I'm a Romans 2 sort of non-believer. A religious person who's walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. And that you would cry out to God and ask him to save you. And if you do that, you know what will happen? No condemnation. His spirit will dwell in you. Give life to your mortal body so that you might obey him now. That's the good news of the gospel. If you're in Christ, that's how you can know for certain that God will fulfill his promises to you. How do I know that I really belong to God? Because his son has died in my place. And I know I belong to Christ because I see his spirit in my life. It's nothing to do with me that gets me into heaven. It's nothing to do with me that gives me comfort. I am comforted when I think on Christ and the mercy of God and sending his son and sending his spirit. And that is good news that gives us rest. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word tells us about the Christian life. God, thank you that there is no sin in our life that is too difficult for us to turn from. But because of your spirit, your spirit which is powerful enough to raise your son from the dead, because of your spirit's work in us, Lord, we can be holy. Father, we praise you for your grace. We give all praise to the Father and the Son and the Spirit for the goodness shown to sinners, Lord. Help us, God, this week to live transformed lives, lives uh, that are in accordance with the work you've done in us. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to see that we've really been saved by giving us these clear comforts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.